0: So happy Advent to all of you. For the next several Sundays, we're going to be leaning into the season by reading some stories from the Bible, hearing stories from fellow Riverites, and taking some time for prayer and reflection. And we're going to kick off the season officially by lighting the first Advent candle right now. Now traditionally, an Advent candle is lit each Sunday, and it symbolizes a different practice or aspect of spiritual preparation. We're going to enjoy this candle together today, and then many of us are going to continue lighting candles throughout the week as we continue on our Advent journey. So as we light this first candle, uh, we're waiting for the fuller brightness that is to come. We want this flame to remind us to wait and watch for what God will bring us and to see what he's already brought us. So now we're going to read, or I'm going to read, a story. In this first week of Advent, we're looking at the theme of waiting. Today's story is about Anna the prophetess, And it's taken from the second chapter of Luke, verses 36 through 38. Here we go. There once was a woman named Anna. She lived among the people of Israel. Anna did not have an easy life. When she was a young woman, she got married and lived with her husband. But after seven years, Anna's husband died. And after that, She was a widow for many, many years. Anna grew old and became a prophetess. She had a deep relationship with God, and God spoke to her. Anna spent all of her time in the temple, worshiping and praying. She prayed for many things, but especially for her people of Israel. God had promised that her people would be a great nation, But they were not even free. They were under the power of the Roman Empire. God had promised that they would be a blessing to all people on earth. But the people of Israel didn't feel blessed. They felt oppressed. God had promised that the king above all kings would come from Israel. But their king did not have real power. He had to listen to the Roman Emperor. God had promised that he would send the Messiah, the chosen one, to rescue them, to be their light in the darkness. So, Anna prayed for the Messiah, the chosen one, to come and bring hope to the whole world. Anna prayed. She hoped. She believed. And she waited. One day, as she was worshiping and praying in the temple, God told her about the child who was being presented by his parents according to the law. She walked up to them and saw the chosen one that she had been waiting for all this time. The child's name was Jesus. As soon as Anna saw the child, she thanked and praised God. And said to everyone who had been waiting for God to rescue Israel, She said, All who have been waiting, He is here. So now let's take a moment of quiet and stillness to reflect on the story. And we have two questions to help you reflect. What caught your attention as you listened to the story? Is there a word, phrase, image that stands out to you? And what feelings were evoked by it and why? Take just a moment of silence and think about that.
1: Good morning, everyone. My name is Caroline. I'm one of the pastors here. So today, uh, that was a beautiful reading, Sarah. And for those of you um, who uh, were attracted by this story, there are week, uh, daily stories, actually uh, reflection stories that we are providing this uh, during this Advent, um, which is up on our app already. So there are five stories from the Bible about waiting this, uh, this week that you can listen to, uh, along with some reflective questions. So today is the first Sunday of Advent. Advent means coming. It is the four-week period leading up to Christmas, when the church traditionally prepares for the coming of Christ. So it is really the four-week period of waiting and preparing. We're waiting for God's time to come, preparing for it as we wait, trusting that it will be there. It will come so that when it comes, we can finally celebrate and follow and move forward with God who is with us. those are the four themes that we will walk through together as we wait during the season. Four weeks of waiting. Does it sound somewhat uncomfortable? (laughs) We're not so great with waiting. um, Our culture is almost anti-waiting. The modern technology has made it possible for us not to have to wait for a lot of things. There was a time when I was amazed to get the DVDs from Netflix in a few days of ordering in the mail. (laughs) But now it's just a click of a button. There was a time when I had to use a dial-up modem to go online and was just amazed that it connected at all because it always... Didn't always connect. Now, if the internet's a little bit slow, I'm all frustrated. Now I don't even bother if some video takes too long to load, and then um, or am outraged when the food doesn't get delivered on time from a restaurant. We're so not good at waiting that it feels wrong to have to wait for anything. But there are things in life important things in life that just don't come without waiting. Like, I can't believe it still takes 18 years to raise a child and send them off, (laughs) and then still it's not done. Speaking from personal experience. So as uncomfortable as it might be to us, a season of learning to wait will grow us, make us stronger, more patient, and more loving. And more likely to receive what we're waiting for because then we wouldn't just turn away um, on the, at the moment we feel like it's taking too long. So during the season of Advent, we'll sit with these two questions. What am I waiting for? Because sometimes we're reluctant to even sit down and think about that. And how am I waiting? How am I preparing for it? How am I trusting even in the uncertainty? What am I waiting for? And how am I waiting for it? In hopes that when it's time to celebrate Christmas, we will be readier to receive Jesus and understand his love and his presence in our lives. Fortunately for us, The Bible is all about people who are waiting. The whole book is, in a way, about waiting. Like today's story of Anna, the prophetess. She's someone who's had a hard life. She was married young, but after seven years of marriage, her husband died. And uh, and and She lived as a widow and was 84 years old in the story. And depending on the translation, some say that it could be translated as that she was actually a widow widow for 84 years, that she was ancient. So back then, women had no financial independence. So as a widow, a big part of her life must have been about surviving. So no wonder she prayed so much. She had so much need. There were a lot of things that she was waiting for. And on top of this personal waiting, her people, the whole nation of Israel were waiting for the Messiah, God's chosen one who would come and free them. They had a king um, who had limited authority uh, and with only under the Rome's approval. Israel was under the Roman rule at the time. And before the Roman rule Um, They were under the Persian rule. And before that, it was the Babylonian Empire who invaded and destroyed Jerusalem and uh, and the temple and exiled and resettled its people in Babylon. And before that, it was Assyria. And long time before that, there were slaves in Egypt. Ancient Israel, their national identity is rooted and was rooted in their collective experience of slavery and God who led them out of it. They had a long, hard history of being occupied and oppressed. This is important to remember. The entire Bible, our scripture Is written by these oppressed people who were small in the world of big powers, who were pushed down and enslaved by the hostile forces around them. And that raises a question, doesn't it? What does that say about their God, our God? This is one of the questions I'm exploring in this theology course that I'm taking currently. The answer has been one of the most powerful thing I've learned about God. God of the Bible. God wasn't just helping them because the people he happened to choose were having a hard time and being oppressed. It goes much deeper than that. God came to these people because they were oppressed and in need need of help. It is about who God is and what God is like. Our God is the God of small people, the powerless and the voiceless. The people who are other and marginalized. The famous Ten Commandments. Start like this. I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. God is not just any God. God is the one who brought them out of the house of slavery. God is on the side of the slaves and the oppressed. Those who are unfairly treated by the powers of this world. This is radically different from any other images of gods, especially in ancient cultures. Other gods represented the power of this world. They stood for the kings and the pharaohs, the victors and the conquerors, the powerful who did not have to bend to others. But God of is God of the Bible. Is so radically different in that God stands with those who the systems of power don't care about. God stands with the poor in spirit, those who mourn, the meek, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers, the persecuted, and calls them blessed. We recite blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. But often miss how radical that is, how uniquely different this God is. And that's what it means when God said to the Israelites and us, you shall have no other gods before me. It is not about the exclusivity of the tribal God from this geographic region whose name is Yahweh or Jesus, but about the only God who can deliver them out of slavery, deliver us, because this God is the only God who doesn't believe in slavery, who is against putting people down, who is not about having power over others which was all the other idols were about. This is amazing news because all the ways that your heart is broken, all the ways that you have been treated unfairly, unjustly, been pushed down all the ways that we have felt powerless or voiceless. God sees and comes. God doesn't come so that we can now be on the top and our enemies down. But to lead us out of the reality where one needs to push down the other to survive, take from the others to have any. Into God's reality of love and justice and abundance. And Anna the prophetess, the story we've heard today, was blessed because she got to glimpse the very face of that reality, Jesus. This season, we're waiting for the coming of this Jesus. So as uncomfortable as it may feel, let's sit In the space of waiting in ways that we might feel powerless or voiceless because our God is Emmanuel, God who is with us. I've asked two people today from our own congregation to share their reflections on what this waiting means to them, what it looks like to them. It was uh, powerful for me to read their notes, and I believe that they will lead us, lead all of us into the space of deep waiting. So I'm going to invite up Gloria um, here, and then after Gloria, we will have John up.
2: Thank you. Uh, Thank you, Caroline. As some of uh, you may know, I am from Venezuela, a country in South America. I moved to New York 17 years ago. For many years, I have been praying that God shows up and helps my home country. I have begged him with tears, sometimes with frustration and anger and I'm still waiting for him to show up. Venezuela is going through a catastrophic humanitarian crisis without precedence. This is the result of being under a criminal dictatorship for nearly 20 years. People in Venezuela are dying due to lack of food, lack of medicines, lack of medical care and violence. Public services in Venezuela have collapsed. There is a systematic violation of human rights, killings, repression, arbitrary detentions, and torture. More than three million of Venezuelans have fled the country. This represents the second largest migration crisis in the whole world, with Syria being at the top. This crisis uh, has affected my family and myself. My mother, some of you know my mother, she was here recently visiting New York. And a couple of weeks ago, I traveled with her to Colombia to bring her back to her home. She still lives in Venezuela, but I can't take her there and it's not safe for her to travel by herself in Venezuela. It is very risky for me to enter Venezuela because I will be subjected to extensive scrutiny because I am an expat. And also because I have been participating in many demonstrations supporting democracy and against the regime, I could also be a target there. I went with my mother to the city of Cucuta in the Colombian border with Venezuela. There there we met with some of my relatives from Venezuela. Uh, They crossed the border to Colombia in order to meet with us and my mother to take my mother back to Venezuela. Crossing the border to Colombia, it is not easy. They had to do it by foot and endure long hours under the sun and the heat, along with thousands of Venezuelans pushing their way through in order to cross the border. So I have a picture. Um, yes, this, this is how it is. Every day 30,000 or 40,000 of people crossing to Colombia. This was a very emotional trip for me and my relatives. Um, they have lost weight. It's, their clothes look big on them because they can afford anything new. They told me a lot of stories about how hard is everything for them in Venezuela. They told me they haven't been able to eat any type of meat in months. And they also told me, like, about how, like, a cartoon of eggs is worth half of a monthly salary. We stayed together in Cucuta for two days. We also had good times. And before we part our ways, I took them to the supermarket to buy basic needs items for them to bring back home. I know this will only last for a couple of weeks. I also took them to the pharmacy to buy medicines, and they all had come with lists of medicines they need. Um, all these expenses were paid by my two siblings that live in Europe and by myself. I also have a picture of my family, uh, my relatives there. Uh, the son of My uncle, my cousin, my mom. So um, saying goodbye was so hard for all of us. Not only because we were going to meet each other. We don't know when are we going to see each other again. But also because my relatives are going back. They were going back. And my mother were going back to the nightmare that has become living in Venezuela. I also met some Venezuelans living on the street of Cucuta. They had left everything behind because they didn't have anything to eat back home. Uh, these are two kids that I met, and I, I talked to them two days. Uh, she's 15, he's 12. They're from Caracas. Um, They used to go to school, now they don't. And they left because they didn't have any food. They left with her aunt and her grandmother. And now they're on the streets of Colombia um, asking for money and food. This crisis has been painful, heartbreaking, and stressful, and frustrating for me. Many times I feel hopeless like whatever I do to help is not enough. Sometimes I feel like I'm living a double life. I'm having a normal life here in New York, but always thinking, praying, and worrying about Venezuela. It is challenging to be patient and wait for God. Knowing that every single day I wait for him to show up, it means that more deaths and suffering for my people in Venezuela. It is hard for me to accept that there is no guarantee that God will answer my prayer during my lifetime. I am grateful for the Holy Spirit for giving me guidance and strength to not give up. And I'm grateful for my husband and our children for their support and patience and understanding And I'm also grateful for the river, for the support, and all the teachings. I have learned that waiting shouldn't be passive. Staying diligent renews my faith, which gives me strength to continue to believe that God is going to show up. And these are my prayers. I pray that God is compassionate with the people in Venezuela. I pray for a miracle I pray that God get rid of the regime in power. I pray for justice, for freedom, democracy, peace, and pro- prosperity for Venezuela. I pray there are no more deaths and there is no more suffering in Venezuela. Thanks. John.
3: So for those of you who don't know me, I'm a law professor at Fordham Law School, and I spent probably the past 20 years of my life studying one simple question, which is trying to understand where our whole mass incarceration prison system came from, how we got here, where we can go. Uh, I probably spent the past several years really focusing on, I wouldn't say how to make it Better, I think that's too optimistic a goal. I guess how to make it just less horribly awful uh, is kind of where we are. Um, so when Caroline asked me to talk talk about Advent, I was somewhat surprised because criminal justice reform is not a very Advent feeling kind of feel. You know, Advent is always associated with sort of hope and optimism, and those are not words I've ever used to describe the work that, that I that I do. Right? You know, Advent is very much about sort of, you know, the the expectation and excitement and and optimism that goes with waiting for Christmas and and the miracle that that is Jesus. Um, And even though we're somewhat spoiled on how that story ends, where it's not quite the optimistic ending at the start, you know, Advent itself is kind of about that that boundless optimism that, that Jesus' initial arrival kind of gave us sort of the unlimited possibilities that, that came with, with that. And I think the fact that it comes at the new year matters also, right? That it comes right at the end of December, beginning of January. We kind of think we can put all those failures and problems and, and mistakes of the past year behind us and kind of start anew and afresh with something exciting and, and uplifting. Um, and that's not what my job is. Right. It's, it's true that lately there have been some small victories and successes, right? You know, in, in the wake of sort of the Ferguson protests and the rise of Black Lives Matters and the NFL protests, there have been some legislative and electoral victories here and there. But they're small and they're tentative, uh, and they're oftentimes undone almost as soon as they're done. Uh, and they're mostly just nibbling around the edges. Uh, and they're nibbling on the edges because the actual real cause of our policy failure is far deeper than just the laws that we have. Right? It's, it's a fundamental refusal on our part to view the people in the system as human, mm-hmm. right? that we fundamentally dehumanize everyone in the criminal justice system. It's tied very much to our long, deep and inescapable, painful history of slavery and racism that causes us to view people of color, black people in particular, as just less than fully human. Uh, but it's also tied to class as well, right? That we tend to view the poor not as pe- people deserving of compassion and support, but as s- something somewhat less than that, who deserve our contempt and our scorn and our punishment. Um, these these are not things that are going to be fixed quickly, right? You know, our, the institutions that we're that we built up have these attitudes infused throughout throughout all of them, uh, and you can't turn the page on the calendar and make a history of racism and classism just disappear. So, like I said, I I was somewhat surprised when Caroline talked to me about Advent, the waiting part, I get the, uh, the optimism and hopefulness and unbounded possibilities part. That's not something I'm used to talking about, but unsurprisingly, when Caroline asks a very difficult question, it tends to take you to a fairly surprising place, uh, which is how it was for me. Uh, because by the time I started thinking about this, I realized that without even perhaps even realizing it myself, I kind of had started to approach my work from a more Advent-like perspective. You know, I, I read a sermon that ties in very much what we've talked about here today. You know, while we think about Advent as as waiting for Christmas and waiting for Jesus to come. Preparing goes hand-in-hand with the waiting. It's not just passively sitting there and waiting for something to happen. It's about sort of taking those steps to make yourself and everyone around you ready for whatever that something might be, even if you don't quite know what it is or don't quite know how to get there yet. Um, Or maybe put differently, I've come to realize, and I realize this is a bold, bold statement to say, uh, that maybe Martin Luther King's famous quote isn't quite right. That, yes, the moral arc of the universe is long, but it doesn't bend towards justice. It gets bent towards justice. Right? That's not something you have to passively sit there. If we just sit back and wait long enough, we'll get there, just wait, right? and wait, and wait, and wait. Right? That you have to actually take steps to push it in that direction. Uh, and I think for me at least, that act of pushing is what makes the waiting possible. Right? I've come to accept the fact that I probably won't, see a criminal justice system that's just in my lifetime, right? It's been broken for 200 years. I don't think it's going to get fixed in the next 40, 50. That's probably as optimistic as I can be. (laughs) Um, So I expect that I will spend my whole life waiting for the very thing I spend my whole life working for. But I think it's those daily small little victories of sort of pushing here and there that make that waiting possible, right? Just realizing some days I spent – just managed to convince that one person to view the people in prison as more human than they did earlier in that day. Like that alone sort of gives me the strength to to wait and wait Um, because for something that I think will come, something sort of miraculous that is out there even if I don't – know what it is and if i won't necessarily see it at least i've done like my small part to push it in some direction that way so thank you
1: thank you both for sharing so deeply um these are heavy topics um I realized after I asked the two of them, they're going to be very heavy. (laughs) Um, And it's a heavy kind of waiting. But But as both of them expressed, we wait actively, looking toward what can be. Because we follow the God who comes and tends to the pain of his people. Who is attentive to the prayers of the powerless and the voiceless. So as painful as it can be to wait without knowing and even acknowledge that we're waiting, I invite us to sit in the space of waiting today and consider this question, what am I waiting for? What are the areas in which I feel small and powerless? What are the areas in which I am still waiting for God to show up? To see love win. Because that's the first step of waiting. To know what we're waiting for. Let's take a few minutes um, to, before, as we move, transition into worship, to think about this question. And I invite you to write down your answer on the insert in your program. We have a little insert that uh, summarizes what our Advent um season will be about and in the back we thoughtfully uh, put lines for you so you can write Um, so I invite you to write your answers to this question what am I waiting for in the back to mark the beginning of this year's advent and you can have it up somewhere um, at home where you can see often Um, and we will wait with this prayer Because this is a prayer. This is our prayer. We'll wait with this prayer. And we'll think about how can we wait well as well in, in the coming weeks. So for but today, what are you waiting for? In what area do you need God to show up for you? Let me pray for us as we start the time of reflection. Emmanuel, Jesus, thank you that you are the God who is with us, that you are with us. As we reflect on ways, we're still waiting for you to show up, still waiting for love and justice, still waiting for to be freed. I pray that you lift our spirits, fill us with hope and faith. Help us with the courage to sit with this waiting in our hearts. Let our our hearts be turned towards you, draw us closer to you, and let us hear your voice and let us feel your presence with us, your care and love Mm -hmm. for us. Come, Jesus, come. Amen.